what you're seeing is where we are now is a world where the internet flows freely, information flows freely thanks to the internet, but value doesn't. Value is still stuck in these regional constraints and these regional hubs, and it doesn't flow as freely. And so our key vision here is that what the internet did to information, Bitcoin will do to value. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. I wanted to know more about the people converging on this new form of money. Why do they see value in it? What skills enable their understanding? How is it changing their lives? If you're a founder looking for funding or an investor looking to make investments, then please reach out as I develop my network in the space. Do me a favor and chuck us a five-star rating on whichever app you're using to listen or a like if you're watching it somewhere. As insignificant as this may seem, they help a startup project like this hugely. Lastly, if you have any questions at all, please just reach out. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Jake E. S. Woodhouse. Now, I'd like to take a quick moment to talk about our sponsor. Fast Bitcoins are a Bitcoin exchange who you should definitely take a look at next time you're thinking of making a Bitcoin purchase. They're a great team, which for me is always the key to due diligence, whilst their product has a ton of features useful to every Bitcoiner. Check out my episodes with Danny Brewster, the founder CEO, and Nathan Smith, the chief compliance officer, to learn more about the people behind the brand. Thank you to Fast Bitcoins for sponsoring the show. Now, on to today's episode. I'm speaking with Mick Marucci. Hey, Mick. Hey, Jake. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining. It's it's breakfast time with you in Brazil. You look very relaxed uh, on your sun lounger, and I kind of wish I was there. It's the end of the day here in Australia, so slightly different vibes. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. So as I mentioned briefly before I started recording, this is a podcast about people's personal journeys. If honest, I don't know much about yourself at this point, so I can't wait to find out what the story is. But you run the Geyser Fund. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what's brought you to today? Oh yeah, absolutely, Jake. Pleasure to be here and, and talk about my, my, my journey. I guess like everyone else, Bitcoin journey starts with a touch point where you're on the other side and you see this like uh, weird, odd thing and you first reject it. So for me, it was in the form of my roommate in the university telling me, hey, Mick, let's buy some Bitcoin back in 2010. And me mm. thinking just, I think I had probably seen something about it and I thought it was a sort of virtual money that could sort of be kind of spun up or created out of thin air, right? It's so really the opposite of, of what value is. And then after a few more touch points here and there in 2016, I think it was a person that I deeply respected asked me, so but what do you actually think about it? And that really brought me to really kind of be honest with myself and think, okay, actually, I don't know enough about this to have a, a proper say. And so, yeah, but then I went... I went down sort of uh, the rabbit hole, I guess you could say, first on online and then finding this weird Bitcoin tribe on Twitter. And I remember thinking, like, either these guys are absolutely mad or they've discovered something really, really deep. And my background is in anthropology and economics. So I guess that that personal perspective for me brought me to, to like, listen and, and try to entertain the, the ideas that were being brought. and. And I guess that's the anthropologist in me kind of being open to learning and saying, okay, I don't know, let's listen to this tribe of people on the internet saying these, these crazy things. My personal academic journey brought me to think that there is something strangely wrong with the world, just the, the level of inequality, the level of like environmental degradation to some extent. Things don't feel right. A bit like Neo and the Matrix where it's like, you know, you can smell it in the air, you can taste it in the food, just something like this level of work, stress, just things that are seen definitely felt all out of balance. And my personal background also let me travel and like sort of live a bit more like this kind of global child of the, the global era we live in, having grown up in different countries. And so I think that also kind of shook me quite a bit. And uh, not that there is anything wrong with like with, with that at all, but but definitely this feeling that we live in interesting times. And so with that, I decided to entertain a lot of these ideas. And actually, things began to fall into place a lot more, even just understanding what money is in the first place and recognizing that in economics, 
after four years of studying it, uh, they don't even really teach you what money is. And kind of thinking about that a little more, <laughs> thinking, why, why wasn't this simple question, what is money, answered in the very, very first, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, 101 course. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's fascinating. It's like a very, very superficial view of money as a, as uh, actually, it, it, like took it for granted, really, uh, as a sort of a tool of, of the state. And uh, yeah, and so with that, you know, going deeper and deeper, that's 2016, 17. And then I ended up just pursuing more like the podcast, all the content that was being created. Right. And I was really orange pilled, like quite, quite quickly around that time. And I, I understood like there was this massive number go up phenomena in 2017. And then like this massive decline in 2018. And for me, it didn't really budge me. I had already like understood that if this thing has been alive for eight years straight and if people can't break this and it's just getting stronger and stronger and all it does, it goes back down to 3000, then this thing is just going to keep doing its thing and it will find its use cases in the form of money that is anti-inflationary, money that is anti-censorship and also anti-seizures, seizures. In the sense of, yeah, like just arbitrarily stealing your wealth, like had been done with the truckers more recently and like happens all over the world. And so with such a foundational property of money, just, it made so much sense. And, and so like many others as well, I ended up looking at other, like other coins and thinking, oh, but this blockchain thing is also kind of interesting. And, uh, for a little bit of time, I usually think about like blockchain as sort of this like decentralization as a spectrum and which you have maybe less decentralized tools and, and blockchain as being potentially useful for other things. But I think it was uh, Jimmy Song who made me think about it in a very different perspective and really influenced me in the sense to think about it really as, as, a, as this foundational thing that has to be binary. Like it either is decentralized or it isn't. It's either decentralized enough. It's a bit like, I don't know, having a standing army. Like. You either have an army that actually does the job of protecting or you might as well not even have an army, <laughs> right? Because if you're, if, if, if country A has a hundred units and country B has two or 50, it doesn't make a difference because you're still not sovereign. You're still going to get, uh, attacked and right. Two or 50 doesn't make it that. Okay. Maybe, maybe 90 is probably, there's probably a threshold there where it's still quite costly for an army of a hundred to attack an army of 90. But if it's like 20 or two, there's a very, very thin spectrum there. It's mostly just think about a bit like a binary. And so in the same way, blockchains have, uh, and money has to be like fully distributed and, and Bitcoin is just the best form of it. And it's this foundational layer upon which all these other financial tools get built on top of. Yeah, this is a bit of a small digression, but I kind of want them kind of quite all down the rabbit hole. Understood sort of money from first principles, finance also from first principles, and thinking about it as a slayered system. I ended up working for a year in an Ethereum company. I, when I first entered, it wasn't at all in Ethereum uh, and sort of ended up being um, as I went into it. And it was overall like a, a positive experience. And so I had been working for, I should mention, three, four years in the financial sector, traditional finance. And it was one of these typical like well paid jobs in the tech sector of finance companies, building apps, building mobile apps, building software for big banks. And as you can imagine, it was pretty unfulfilling, not much innovation happening. Whenever we were building something that kind of potentially innovative, we were even building wallets, Bitcoin wallets for banks, and they sort of get rejected and in the end, just kind of buried away, if you can believe it. I mean, these people like really don't understand. Like, and have no, no incentive to understand many times what this thing is. Although it's fair to also say that I think many people, it's still, we're also figuring out what this thing is. And I think when it comes to like the lighting network, I think this is where the potential I think comes up where banks can become useful again. I think we'll start adopting lightning, but that's another, another conversation. So yeah, so I ended up kind of deciding to change a little bit and then work in a startup space, you know. It was what it was. I was like, oh, I'm a Bitcoiner, but let's keep an open mind and learn what we can. And maybe I'm wrong. Um, but after a year or so of working this Ethereum startup, I realized, okay, this is not sound money. I understood more about like the issuance and the, the, the pre-mind, which definitely the, the ethos that's just didn't align. 
it also it was also like not sound technology really like if you think about just all the amount of hacks that are happening on, on all these uh, smart contracts really it, it's not as many of them say ultra sound money it's, it's really i cannot believe that that's become actually an actual meme because like money has to be this like very very simple thing and not a super complex moving always moving kind of system right and then really did but it really work in many cases like there are these like secondary layer technologies like polygon uh, matic that have their own tokens and basically are their own blockchains so it's like a blockchain on top of a blockchain that doesn't doesn't provide microtransactions like it should as a secondary layer technology. Uh, it's slow, as as you would imagine, and it's also quite expensive. You still have to pay sometimes up to five dollar per transaction. So it's like just I had been going kind of also in depth into into Lightning and had running my node and playing with it. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? Just this this is not sound technology. <laughs> it's really not. And so uh, recognizing that and. You know, that said, there's, there's, you know, some positive takeaways as well, like just the level, the design space in the Ethereum space. And I have a background in design, working as a designer, a UX, UI designer in, in these fintech companies. So kind of recognizing there's a lot of, you know, positive things that we can learn from, from the space. There's a lot of design that helps improves the user experience for a lot of these newcomers, which might explain how they were able, you know, to, to amass such a number of Web3 <laughs> quotations uh, people to go into the space and i got to kind of experience a 2017 vibe of like a lot of a lot of newcomers entering the the space and running there you know like you know all these different applications and stuff and i mean in some ways i think it's a, a premonition of what will happen on bitcoin when we have these well-stacked solutions uh, and i think what happened in, in the near future with with the lightning application emerging but yeah it, it was in many ways interesting, in many ways really brought me to really consider Bitcoin only as the only possible uh, sound money, sound idea systems, sound ideology, and, and sound technology. That's how I see it. Sound ideals, sound money, sound technology. And really consider myself in the future long term and thinking, okay, no, this is, we have to build towards what is like right and what is long term, what is good for humanity as well. So all this kind of brought me to um, to consider where I was and had been doing a lot more work in Lightning, playing with a node. And I guess what prompted me to start Geyser was the fibrillation, the, the energy that I felt around the Lightning ecosystem. It's something quite, quite special, quite amazing. But around summer of 2021, I remember just feeling all this like buzzing around kind of new applications and new, and new, um, actually not even that it was. Bitcoiners coming together and say, hey, let's get some shit done. Let's do this. I remember seeing all these new educators propping up. I spoke with Paco de la India before he was even like he had like a few hundred followers and he was going to go out and go to Africa and teach people about Bitcoin. I remember talking to people that wanted to start, start their own co-working spaces, educators and content creators putting out content on Twitter. I remember when kind of that started happening. And I felt like I couldn't actually provide a value back to them in an easy way. I remember thinking, oh my God, it's how do I actually contribute and how do I provide value back for what they've provided me? How do I make them do more of what they're already doing? And there wasn't an easy way for me, for me to do that. And at the same time, I have experimented with lightning and the potential for microtransactions. I remember thinking. Oh my God, there's a solution here. Like a lightning provides the value transfer protocol and easy for us to use these, these protocols that make it worthwhile and that provide that great user experience around that. I love the <clears throat> journeys people go on, you know, I've, I've just, well, you've just taken me through 20 minutes of the, the story. And there's so many things that I'd like to ask you about. And I, I can't, we have an hour. I don't, want to, I don't want to ask you about all of them. But what particularly excites me is this idea of what people knew before they looked at Bitcoin and then how that knowledge helps them understand Bitcoin. So just to cycle back to anthropology mm -hmm. as a specific subject, for those people out there that don't understand what anthropology is, can you explain to them you know, what you, what you learned studying that subject and 
how it dovetails into economics. And specifically, just to resonate with you for a moment, so I did a business management degree. I tweeted recently that in my four-year degree, I don't think I even remember Austrian economics being mentioned. And someone came back to me and said, oh, I had it mentioned, but it was only ever mentioned to say, Keynesian economics is amazing. Look at this other school of economics that makes no sense. We're right. Mm -hmm. Kind of shoehorned in for like a small moment just to kind of prove the status quo was correct. So Mm -hmm. I have a very similar experience in that sense. There's this whole world of information that wasn't even, I wasn't even aware it existed. So yeah, so tell us a bit about anthropology. Yeah, so anthropology, TLDR of anthropology is that it's the study of people and culture. And anthropology is, you know, goes back millennia and it goes back to Herodotus and the, the ancient Greek philosophers who went around the Greek colonies and, and, and studied people and described what life was like and described what people ate, described how, with the cultures and customs and traditions. And so through time, it has changed into, you know, being different sort of, you know, having different methodologies, but always really trying to make the focus people and, and culture. What else here in terms of the history? Well, make it yeah, it slightly. So when you started looking uh-huh. at Bitcoin and asking the question, what is money? How did your anthropology training help you on that journey? And maybe yeah, it so, didn't. if it didn't, that's also totally fine. Yeah. Answer. I'm just intrigued as to whether or not yeah, totally. um, that, that view. So you're able to, to dissect day-to-day life. You have a historical context as to why that was important before Bitcoin comes along. You're like, okay, well, what is money? And did that help in terms of understanding, do you think? Yeah, so anthropology, the, the key facet of modern anthropology is what you would call like the methodology of finding out what is truth. And one of the key elements of, of anthropology, modern anthropology, is the fact that you have to accept that you don't know, and you have to accept that the people you're speaking to have their own truth, and you have to find out through what it's called ethnography or it's participatory observation. You kind of go and, and you go in a tribe or go in a society and you discover what is true to people. And that's kind of the cool thing about anthropology that I think is valuable is that, is that relativism is important when you want to discover something. Um, and you shouldn't assume that you know, and you shouldn't assume that there is one objective truth, which can get a little bit out of hand as well, because I think modern anthropology has gone way, way too far deep down that, that path of accepting that nothing is true, that everything is relative, and that, you know, if you believe you're a dog, then you're a dog. Like, that's just complete nonsense. But I think the main, <laughs> under, their main understanding, like the method of the heuristic, the, to, 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 for, I guess you could call it epistemology, the method of epistemology of like trying to find out by accepting that you may not be right and that there may be something to learn is incredibly valuable i think even still today and should remain but but then once you do that you have to kind of i think try to uh, synthesize and bring things together and that's what anthropology is not very good at so it does a lot of the ethnography i think has been very very powerful and then the problem is that then you you kind of bring it into these kind of already prepackaged models and theories and so you have to package up all that data into these prepackaged models and make it so that you end up with the same constant kind of criticism towards neoliberalism or capitalism and that's i think where i really was also you know indoctrinated into and really i do think bitcoin helped me get out of that like basically anthropology structural training kind of brings you to the idea that Things are not right in the world. Look at the state of the world, except it doesn't do the diagnosis correctly. So it does actually say that, you know, the whole state of the world with, you know, neoliberalism is is problematic. It doesn't assess properly where that neoliberalist system comes out of. It assumes that it's the free market. It assumes that it's like the unleashing of of market into, into the world. Well, instead, it's it's the breaking of the market through money, right? So the idea that money is this thing that doesn't really question it very well. And so, just to go back to your question, anthropology I think has some cool, some really good tools to help you assess what is money. There are some anthropology that go deep into that the question of money and debt. There's like David Graeber, very very famous anthropologist that passed away recently that looked at this history of debt. Um, but funnily enough, they never really, like they get really close to understanding that there's a problem that is foundational, but never really like explore the whole problem of money 
that is governed by central banks. And like, funnily enough, I guess if you like would look at what Saifedina Mousse does with like the history of money, uh, what I'm sure I don't get to hear is that anthropology has been so relativized that we don't even study the actual like detailed history of money and how we get to hard money. So that even that would be not acceptable because it seems like you're getting to a truth, but there is no truth, but that's bonkers. Like, so it's sad to see the state of anthropology today because like what Saifedina Moose has done, for example, is more anthropological than mm. what anthropology is today, if that makes mm. sense. Just yeah. like that, that entire vision of seeing like the history of, of humanity, just being the search for a harder money is such a powerful idea. Mm. It's just that it just, to me, it's like, this makes much more sense than four years of university. So mm. thank you very much, but I'm going to go with what makes more sense to me. Make the cool thing so, about so that maybe, is I would argue that because of your anthropological background, you then look at Saifedean's work with an anthropological lens and you, yes, yeah. what your traditional teaching has given you hasn't taken you to where you wanted to go or where you thought was correct or didn't feel right. But only through that experience did you suddenly go, I know what Saifedean's talking about and he's absolutely fucking mm -hmm. bang on. That's what I find really yeah. fun when, when these kind of, these subjects or experiences collide and you go, oh, that makes sense. I really liked your focus on keeping an open mind and you spent some time in the Ethereum space and it was only through that experience that you started to understand what Ethereum really was and the blockchains that were built on top of it and therefore the importance of Bitcoin itself. So going back to the story you were telling about the reasons behind why you wanted to start Geyser, can you explain a bit more as to like why building on top of Bitcoin as a, you know, perhaps slow, but also completely solid, unbreakable foundation is such an important part of building a business as an entrepreneur? So yeah, I think as a Bitcoiner, you know, I've always wanted to build on top of Bitcoin. And I think what really helped are these sound foundations as money and the ethics of that and the ethics of money production are sound. And then you have, you know, very, very key is the usability. So the sound technology that makes usability practical. Um, and if you think about it, the whole Ethereum space really started growing when Bitcoin fees started going up, right? So the Bitcoin kind of the, the whole, you know, if you think about even 2016, 17, right? That was a time when Ethereum was very, very low in use, usability and user sort of user adoption. And although it started, there was a lot of ICO stuff happening. That's true. Bitcoin was, was more used. And so the fees were really high. And that led to a lot of people moving towards Ethereum because it was just cheaper, right? Until it got closed up with a lot of the sort of DeFi, you know, NFT and, and other crazes in user systems. So that is, I think, kind of important as well. I think a lot of, if you talk to the Ethereum people out there, they'll, they'll say that they're, they're, they're tired of having to pay hundreds of dollars in fees for every single transaction. And that's just bonkers. And so. What these people do is they, they sort of, you know, build these secondary layers that don't really work. But so what they end up doing is actually just moving down the chain to other less decentralized blockchains like Solana or, or what's the other one? Uh, I'm forgetting the name, but that's sort of what happens, right? They, they end up moving down you know, to cheaper systems that actually work. And if we want to be honest with each other, like Bitcoin took a very, very, very smart long-term facing decisions for four years rather than increasing the size of the blocks the space decided to start building a sustainable long-term solution to the scalability problem meaning building lightning right that took a long time and that a lot of people are just impatient and they'll just be like okay fuck bitcoiners they're like a dead rock i'm gonna go build on this other thing and so i met a lot of Bitcoin OGs that got in in 2013, 2014, and, and they got like sidetracked into this other camp of people that just want to use it as like medium of exchange or want to use it as, you know, money for the internet. And because of the fork, a lot of people that we maybe are not recognized because they've left, but they actually have gone to this other camp for the past four years. Um, but it's getting to the point that now I think a lot of these people come back because they'll see the long-term approach that Bitcoin took as, you know, as, as building a sustainable, like scalable solution that can be used for, for the entire freaking world. 
instead of just increasing the block size or or whatever, because these problems will exist on any blockchain. Because blockchains just don't scale. They just don't understand this foundational thing that blockchains do not scale. And so you need these systems on top, these layer systems that are that are sound, you know, using using technologies like like lightning, where it's people, it's like plebs that are running the nodes, right? It's not Amazon. Mm. It's like people running nodes, connecting on the secondary layer. That's that's a key bit. So I would say that a lot of people left because they didn't find Bitcoin to be useful anymore. They didn't understand Lightning and the incredible power that that provides. But I think they'll come back. I think everything that's being built on Ethereum, whether it's NFTs and DeFi, will come on Bitcoin. Like whether we like it or not, you know. Hmm. If you think about it, like DeFi and a lot of DeFi, a lot of like you know, NFTs. These are just different groups of people. This is something that I've discovered. Just like these are different people with different technical backgrounds, and a lot of them don't have very technical backgrounds. A lot of them also don't even give them much of a shit about Bitcoin as sound money and don't understand what sound money is. I've also discovered that they just they they can have one glance look at it. They haven't really deeply probed what is money and why we need it, and that often comes with just privilege, like growing up in a place where we didn't have to think about it too much. Um, but also, again, yeah, the technical elements, so, you know, a lot of them maybe are like artists and just want to be able to have a tool where they can monetize, right? Mm. And they're just kind of taking that perspective. I'm an artist, I want to make money, I make an NFT and it pays me and you know, maybe it works. And so I, I think all of that will exist on Bitcoin and, and on Lightning as well, because it will work better on Bitcoin and Lightning. And we're going to see that now with, you know, RGB and Taro and more. So like it, it, it will happen. And we should want it to happen. I think we want as Bitcoin Maxis to maintain the solid principles that Bitcoin teaches us and like, you know, low time preference, kind of like non-speculative approaches to things and, you know, focusing on the long term, focusing on, on sound ethics. And we need that. And we need to keep spreading that message as much as possible. But we also have to accept that there will be people with different ideals, different backgrounds, also using Bitcoin for whatever they want. And and that should be considered a win for Bitcoiners. I think Bitcoin is at the foundation, a tool for everyone. Everyone's welcome. And Bitcoin, as I say, is for everyone. And so I think in the coming months or years, we will start seeing a lot of these new like, Ethereum tools being built on Bitcoin because Bitcoin works better. And we should be happy that the enemies are are using Bitcoin, right? Mm. Which is why, like, on Geyser, we want to, like, make that happen. We don't have any NFT stuff or anything, but, like, if you want to use Geyser to crowdfund your Ethereum merch projects, like, just use ahead, use, go bit, use Bitcoin, use Geyser. And we're not going to allow you to use Ethereum. You can use Bitcoin. If someone wants to, to use your platform to raise funds to create an Ethereum-based product, that's okay, but they still have to use Bitcoin through your platform. Right. And just to be clear, we don't accept people like running their, you know, like running a crypto scam on Geyser, but if they want to open an Ethereum based merch store or whatever, mm. yeah, you're free to use Geyser, and, but you're going to have to accept Bitcoin. Sure. And then, but what that does is that brings up a subject I wanted to touch on, and there's two angles to it. So you mentioned earlier the crazy story with the Canadian truckers. And GoFundMe is a fiat-based crowdfunding platform who were coerced by government and, you know, froze people's bank accounts and gave details of the people that had used their service to a nefarious government, essentially. What is the, the stance from, from Geyser as to how you manage that? So as you're built on Bitcoin, is it a case of like you literally can't switch it off even if you wanted to? Or... How does it work when it comes to managing what projects are allowed on and what projects aren't allowed on, etc.? Right. So we started building Geyser and then several months after the whole thing happened, it made us realize how important a tool like a Bitcoin crowdfunding would be useful. But it's important also to understand that there are, there are limitations. The way that we like to think about it is that there's two different levels of censorship. Right? There's the financial censorship, basically being able to lock funds and stop people from using money. And then there's the, the content censorship where you could, you know, shut down a project from your platform, right? And 
So what Bitcoin makes possible is for the financial censorship to, to not happen by enabling crowdfunding campaigns that are entirely non-custodial. And so that's something that we are 100% wow. interested in doing, right? And that's very, very powerful. The idea that money cannot be stopped um, and that we cannot stop it, that we, that we cannot freeze it. That's very, very powerful. So what we do currently, Geyser is fully non-custodial in the sense of creators attach their nodes to a project. So you could be running your own node or you could be using Voltage and the money just goes straight straight to you. We yep. we may act in certain situations as routing nodes. And so that's where we, we might take small percentage fees on the transactions that are happening. Although that's not currently the case, but we cannot we cannot freeze, we cannot stop it. Right. And even as routing nodes, it's all like a smart contract, right? On on lightning that doesn't allow us to decide whether or not to route payments or not. We just let the smart contract do its thing and the payments pass through to the creator. Um, and down the road, actually, and people listening might already see this feature coming up, but we will also allow creators on Geyser to create projects using their custodial Lightning wallets. So if you have custodial Lightning wallets, you could be also using these tools using the Lightning address. So you just pick up the Lightning address from these wallets and the funds go straight to your custodial wallet. Now, that, that means potentially censorship on the part of the custodial wallet. Um, but because we use your lightning address, you can switch custodial wallet if you want to, right? And also I think what this provides mainly is like a 100X improvement of the user experience, just because it's so much easier than running a node. But I know that's not an excuse. Like that's, I think our way to get more users to use Bitcoin. And then what we will do that we will provide incentives for you to run your node. And so that like, for example, lower fees or stuff like that, that will kind of incentivize people to run their node. But what we've really discovered in running this now platform for like five months or so is that like 50% of our users are sort of just like breaking even with their projects, meaning that they're, they're getting very, very few donations. And so running a node can be excessively costly for them. So if we just lower the barriers to entry, lower the cost to creating a project, I think it'll create a lot more creators, a lot more people that will start building on Bitcoin. It just running a node for especially the newcomers is a bit of a challenge. So our approach again is you come into Geyser as a creator, you can either plug in your lightning address and use a custodial wallet, or you can just attach your node. So we, we wanna enable both flows and also incentivize node running because that really is the foundations of Bitcoin is a sort of censorship resistant people owned system that is bottom up. Um, but we also need to make it easy for newcomers to use Bitcoin. So we want to take both those stances. So that's the whole censorship resistance from the financial side of things. When it comes to the content, it's uh, it's, it's a challenging because we are still a platform. Mm -hmm. So we are still in some way a like Facebook, Facebook, like Twitter, I mean, and so any, any platform. Yeah, we are, you know, and so that that has consequences for us in the sense of we are a central point of failure, right? And we recognize that, and so that means we have terms of service. We cannot allow terrorist activity on it. We cannot allow warfare to happen, and so we have to focus on Bitcoin as peaceful revolution. Yeah. We have to focus on Bitcoin projects that are, you know, not non-violent. And I mean, I think. The key there is following the law. So things like a trucker convoy would not be a problem because I think that's a nonviolent protest and there's no reason for that to be an issue. And yeah, we, I, especially because we're based in the United States, uh, like as we are, we, you know, essentially being good boys in the United States, we can provide more freedom tools for the rest of the world. It's fascinating because the, there's always going to be a, a very fine line because in some senses you have to play God. And so. You, you need to decide, is this right? Is this wrong? And at, at the end of the day, though, you're running a business, right? My next question is going to be quite simple. How do you make money? But just to finish the, the point you're making, there's going to be enough of a marketplace of people out there that are raising funds for peaceful and interesting innovation for you to run a successful business. I'm absolutely sure of it. What might be the case is that we're still very, very early. So the actual pool of creators and talent is not yet that big which would mean it's possibly quite difficult to run a business at this stage. And that's what I'm intrigued by. So yeah, how do you guys as a platform actually make money and what's your traction been like so far? 
Yeah, great questions. Yeah, just to answer your your first question, your first question first. So the, right now, as a platform, like you said, we are in some way having to play God, which is not something that we're fans of. And we were exploring avenues and alternatives to, to this. The only main alternative is the fact that we could leverage protocols that allow us to essentially distribute data. So rather than having data hosted on our servers, we could sort of host the data on these distributed databases, but the, the problem will always exist, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are still a platform, essentially plat platforms are just interfaces, right? Where, where they sort of tap into particular databases and distributed protocols and you go to different uh, instances of the of the platform based on your own personal interests right and maybe like a platform will just focus on gaming or another platform will just focus on i don't know guns if you're into that right and it's really about where your community is but platforms will always be able to play god well but less right so still be able to play decide what what content is on there but what you'll see is the distribution of data and also more community owned places so that's also that's another thing so in terms of the data distribution the distributed database we're already looking at nostr as a as a protocol where we can host a lot of the data and then there's also synonym the work that they're doing is pretty great as well that allows us to kind of connect to these distributed databases and but again, as an interface, you can still censor that, right? And so I think that's where it becomes more a matter of community, letting the community guide, you know, certain decisions like Reddit does. But yeah, it's sort of, it's a bit like if you're, if you have a restaurant, right? And maybe, I mean, theory should be able to let everyone in, but if the government ends up saying certain things, you have to, you have to follow the, the, the laws. And so that's a limitation of platforms. So, but always open to explore alternatives and then build more distri distributed and decentralized systems yeah hope, hopefully that makes sense in in yeah. terms of the monetization currently we are we are not taking money because we are we're still sort of like leaving this pilot phase what we'll be releasing very very soon is the ability as i said before to, to launch a project using a lightning address um, when we do that, we will be essentially routing all the money directly to the custodial wallet using lightning addresses. And, and we will be taking a 2% fee from all the transactions that are occurring. So our take here is that we're basically creating a 100x improvement of the user experience. And then as a result, we will take a 2% fee. If you're running your node and this comes to the incentive, we will make it sort of voluntary to charge the fee. And again, we're taking it from the funder, not from the creator. So it's essentially a fee on top of, and that's, it's pretty reasonable compared to like, I think Kickstarter is like, I think 8%, 8.8 .8 something percent, 8.5%. I think like Patreon is like 30% or something like that, or maybe wow. 15, I remember some really, really high. My so, wife has just done a fundraise for her mother and the GoFundMe is coming at around two, two and a half percent. So it's been gotcha, relatively gotcha, cheap. Okay. Yeah. But, um, and what I, I do like about GoFundMe is that they, um, they the, the traditional crowdfunding platforms are expensive. Yeah. So, okay. Let's start from the beginning then. So traditional crowdfunding platforms are, are usually very expensive, especially Kickstarter and Indiegogo that are around 8%. But the, the key problem is that they don't work outside of the West. So they work in Australia, they work in Europe and they work yep. in, in North, North America when you want to create a project, but if you want to create a project from the Philippines, from Nigeria or from Brazil, you, you can't do that because they are relying on Stripe. They're relying on PayPal, which have like just insurmountable amount of regulatory burdens to, to fulfill. And so as a result, they don't, they don't operate there. And what that does is that it stifles the entire online economy and the, the rest of the world. It's an arbitrary cost and fee for everyone. And so what you may find is that there may be like a, a crowdfunding platform here in Brazil, but it's like very regional. It doesn't really scale across. Yeah. And, and so what you're seeing is where we are now is a world where the internet flows freely, information flows freely thanks to the internet, but value doesn't. Value is still stuck in these regional constraints and these regional hubs, and it doesn't flow as freely. And so our key vision here is that what the internet did to information, Bitcoin will do to value. 
And this is where like the whole like Ethereum, Shitcoin kind of world just doesn't understand this. Like they think the innovation is in creating a token out of thin air, and 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 that's just completely ridiculous. It's like let's have a, let's have a million internets. No, we need one internet that works. One internet that allows us to oh, man. to to exchange value freely without having to think too much about what value is. Like we just need to exchange value. That's that's all we need. And we and we need one value, right? That really works. That allows us to do micropayments. Allows us to do because if you end with a million internets, you end up in the world of speculation. It's, mm-hmm. it, that's what Ethereum and shitcoins are. They're just it's really just about speculation. And what Bitcoin does is that enables us to connect the world through value for the very first time in history at this scale. I guess gold did that a little bit, but Bitcoin does that to the world that's the at scale. Kind of thing that gets me so excited, so, Mick. It's like whoa, it's yeah. such a big idea, yeah. isn't it? Oh man, absolutely. It just it gives me shivers now. Even absolutely. Mick, could, can I ask it's, you a question? A, so when I think of crowdfunding, my more traditional <laughs> hat, I think, you know, like. I've got an idea for a product. Here's a prototype. You sell a batch of a hundred. That first batch means you raise some revenue. You've then got some cash flow to invest in improving the product and people build businesses. Alternatively, you have more of like an equity crowdfunding platform where it almost democratizes access to equity investment deals. Or equally, I've seen ones where they have debt, for example. So you can buy bits of debt in solar farms in West Africa or whatever. They're all lots of different types of crowdfunding but i'd not ever considered that the basically the foundation of those businesses are appropriate for certain markets and not others so when i'm thinking of like addressable market geyser geyser i keep calling it different things in my head (laughs) it has a huge potential market so so have you have you done any rough numbers how many people today would like to use crowdfunding platforms but can't versus you know, what is the future ability of, of the global population to transfer value at small scale to projects that they actually like? Because you might be in Brazil and there might be a crowdfunding platform, but all the projects that are on there, they don't resonate with you. Or, you know, you might be mm-hmm. in the Philippines, you want to put money into something in that Brazilian crowdfunding platform, but you can't until now, I assume, right? So yeah. we must be talking like, you know, 10x the size of market that the crowdfunding currently is to where it could be. Yeah. Look, like 85% of the world population doesn't have access to this very primitive financial system. It's a financial primitive in the sense of it's like before lending, before borrowing, before derivatives, before equity is crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is just people putting their money together toward a cause. It's the most basic thing that we've done for millennia. It makes so much sense that this is one of the first application layer technologies to value transfer across the world. And yeah, in terms of the equity crowdfunding, that's very exciting and as well, and you know, people ask us all the time, but, but what's the innovation there? Like, I don't think it's as great or as interesting as just the simple value transfer across space uh, that we can get through the internet at micropayments across the world when it just doesn't exist at the moment. Because even equity has all these legal barriers and yep. legal constraints. Yep. And, and where's the money of the internet bit there? It just, it, it, you can do it with fiat, you know? I think the cool thing about Bitcoin that, like you said, excites the fuck out of me as well, is the, this value transfer protocol that allows to change the nature of the internet. Mm. Money that flows across the web. I, would, I don't even know, but I would suspect 80 to 90% of all the value flow being just ads. Ads and tied to personalized ads that where they know who you are, they know all these specifications, and so they throw at you ads that may work better. So I think with Bitcoin value tied to the internet, we're going to see a redefining of, of, of the experience. And I think the ad model will not go away, but it will be significantly reduced because of the, ability, the simple ability of people to send and even ask for money. So like what Fountain is doing is so powerful, right? And, you know, basically, yeah, allowing you to tip through the value for value model, your, your creators. And what we did now with Odell is that Odell has obviously his own fountain account that's tied into the, the podcasting ecosystem. And he's attached his geyser crowdfunding campaign to his fountain podcast as well. So every time somebody sends, I don't know, one Satoshi as a boost or as a stream on fountain, it gets routed to his crowdfunding campaign on geyser. So basically, you can visualize the leaderboard of 
all the funders that are coming in through podcasting, but also that are funding directly on Geyser. And it's what you're seeing is beautiful. It doesn't have to, you know, go through other ads. It doesn't have to monetize through ads. It doesn't have to sell his users. Sponsors are still an important thing right now, but hopefully in the future, it's the users themselves that are funding back and providing value back to the, the creator. And a lot of this is, is still is still something we were experimenting in. Like we don't understand the final evolution of this, right? Mm. So now we're experimenting with the value for value, which is like free exchange. But what about like paywalls, right? What about, you know, funding to, to access to content, to get access to content, right? That's another very, very powerful tool potentially, right? I think Starbacker is experimenting with that, like where you get to see an image only if you fund whatever amount that the creator decided. Uh, Bit podcast, uh, the, what was it? John Carvalho's podcast, the, uh, the biz podcast, that one also you have, you can fund in Satoshi's to be able to, essentially it's crowdfunding your podcast. So you have, he has to accept, he has to receive, you know, a thousand sat uh, to, to, to release the podcast. And that's something actually a feature that we're, we're going to be building very, very soon as well. So, you know, crowdfunding to, to launch, you know, content. Mm. Um, we're really, really excited, really, really bullish on this idea, the sim- very simple idea that you know, we need we need money of the internet that is native to the internet. And what the world hasn't understood that is that Bitcoin is that money. And and Bitcoin lightning, right? And that's how we win. That's how we bring Bitcoin to the world. It's not by explaining to and educating the world about what money is and why Bitcoin is that. It's by building the tools that work so well that makes it impossible to say no. Right. So like what Fountain is doing, what we hope to be doing as well, providing crowdfunding and this new tool is, is going to be very, very powerful. And I think the next iteration of that on, on Geyser will be hopefully soon. Right. The idea that maybe they don't even know that it's Bitcoin at all. Right. So like they're just sending their Brazilian real to a project in Nigeria and uh, it's kind of routed through Bitcoin lightning. They're just using their maybe their Brazilian lightning wallet. And it's all kind of happening on top of Bitcoin's, like the Taro network. So they're using their local currencies and they're exchanging value to each other. I think that's a potential iteration as well. And obviously people using Bitcoin to get access to these tools as well will be very, very powerful. And so just one a final idea I want to throw at you here is, is, well, the fact that we don't know what that looks like, right? So Facebook started off with the idea that, you know, we're connecting the world, right? But that was just connecting the world through social layer, like information, social information layer. The internet needed Facebook to enable that property of the internet to emerge. And similarly, Bitcoin is connecting the world to value, but it also needs applications to make that property of Bitcoin come through to the end user. You can't just tell the user, just go use Bitcoin Lightning, just like you can't tell user, just go use TPCIP. Right. Mm. So what you have is a world where you need these applications, these application layer technologies like Geyser, like Fountain, like Starbacker, to enable these powerful properties of Bitcoin, like censorship resistant money, global payments, microtransactions, interoperability to really shine through and make users want to use Bitcoin over anything else. Because you can't get those properties with anything else, with any other shitcoin. You really can't. And so in my mind, some way, like we've already won, but what we need to do is, is build these applications that, that shine through these properties and empower people. Like before they even know what money is, right? And, and once they get that, they will start understanding, they'll get into the rabbit hole as well. Um, but we just need to build these tools that empower, empower the world to use it. And so going back to this, yeah, you have Facebook connecting the world. And now we're going to have a lot of Bitcoin applications trying to connect the world through value. And I... We're still exploring what really fascinating is also what, what I don't know yet. So what I don't know yet is why, and like, we're starting to get hints of it, right? But like, why would someone in, in Nigeria fund someone in Suriname or Philippines? Why would someone in Chile fund someone, you know, in Australia? And I think, I think one of the answers so far we've gotten is that it's, it's Bitcoin. It's pushing the Bitcoin message. It's uh, educating. It's doing this great work on the ground that is being done everywhere. And so if you think about Bitcoin working in fractals that get ever bigger, is bigger, bigger cycles every, every epic, every four years. 
what you see with like Geyser was already done in a previous epic by BTC Pay Server. Geyser is just gonna do it like a much, much greater scale. So you know, in the next bull market, we will be ready to provide like the tools for newcomers to crowdfund their idea really easily, like really, really easily. And our hope is to build the Anita Posh, is to enable the Anita Posh, enable the new Paco de la India to go out there and do what they're doing even, even more easily. Mm. Um, and so education is a key element, but also the creative side of things. So I think 60% of all transactions on Geyser happen on creative projects, be it movies, documentaries, like creative projects like racing cars using Bitcoin logo, entertainment shows, content creators like tip, like the crypto couple, that's like massive. That's so big. And that's where the value for value comes in. So yeah, I've said a lot, but that I think is what really excites me. What does the world connect around? And I think this is where Bitcoin is a, is more than we think it's actually a cultural layer in some way. It's like, I think if you think about Kickstarter, they actually were one of the creators of this internet culture that existed around like the 2000s and like now conglomerate around this platform to, to kind of exchange content and create cultural content around it. And I think I'm curious to see that happen on a global level, right? Because that means really it's creating a global culture that is grassroots, right? Many of us who have grown up in like different countries and traveled. So really excited to see that. I'm kind of excited to see what what that looks like and yeah, what are the main kind of, you know, if there are other cultures as well emerging that Bitcoin makes possible. Well, one of the cool things, Mick, about technology product development is you're never quite sure how people are going to interact with it. And you just have to kind of chuck it out there and see what happens. And then you iterate and iterate and iterate to find, you know, your product market fit. Oh, it's very exciting. Well, Mick, listen, we've touched on so many subjects today. I, I look forward to having another conversation, you know, maybe a year or so from now and seeing where you've managed to get in that time, because undoubtedly some very cool stuff is going to be developed. And I particularly like the idea that you're helping other people create. So it's like teaching teachers, but you're helping fund creators. It's a very, very powerful idea. Um, thank you for your time, Mick. My final question is where can people get in touch if they want to reach out? Fantastic. Yeah, they can reach me at metamic14 on Twitter or Telegram or also via Geyser at, at GeyserFun on Twitter. Both, both works fine or email Mick at Geyser.Fund. Brilliant. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jake. No, well, thank you so much for your time, Mick. Really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Okay, friends, nice work. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. As I said at the start, if you have any questions, then please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please rate, like, subscribe, and share. That's it for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.